Understanding the, the first book of the Bible is, is utterly crucial for several reasons. Genesis 1, that is. The first, the title of the book gives you a clue. The word Genesis means beginning or origin. In Genesis, we see the beginning of God's redemptive story. In Genesis, we discover the source of the universe, life, man, work, death, marriage, family, languages, race, war, and so on. This is a chapter, and this is a book, in which we see the beginning of everything, beginning of all beginnings. Not only that, but there's also a theological origin, or should I say there are theological origins, plural, such as here in Genesis, we see the beginning of sin, the beginning of the fall, that is. We see the origin of God's judgment. We see the demonstration of God's mercy and grace. We see introduction of Satan and the devil. We see emotions. We see guilt. We see substitutionary sacrifice. We see sovereign election. We see the gospel and so much more. That is why Genesis is the origin of all origins. But what about God? What about the origin of God? Where did God come from? If everything has an origin and everything has beginning, which which does, then what about God? Where did God come from? When we look at the first chapter of the first book of the Bible, it is about God's creation. If we just as we just read this morning, how many times the emphasis is on God, 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 God. We read about various things that God created on each creation day, but we're still left with the question, where did God come from? If everything has an origin and beginning, then what about God? In this message, I want to point out, before you need to know what God did, so often people want to know about the works of God. What, you know, I want to know what God did. I want to know what God does. And I want to know what God will do. But before we point that out, I want to uh, plead with you, before you need to know what God did, you first need to understand who God is. Again, you must know who God is first and foremost before knowing what he did, what he does, and what he will do. Isn't it any wonder the Bible begins with who he is? In the beginning, God followed by the verb, God created. You will have a hard time understanding what God did 
what God does and what God will do if you don't understand and have a proper knowledge of who God is first and foremost. After Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and the entire Bible would not make sense if you don't understand who the God of Genesis 1 is. It is that important. To say it another way, knowing God is the basis for understanding what God did. Knowing who he is is the basis for what God does presently and what he will do. So I want to introduce you the God of Genesis 1. The God of the Bible. God doesn't change. The God of 2023 is the same God of Genesis 1. So I want to introduce you the God of Genesis 1, the God of the Bible, the God of Christianity, and the God who is the most God-centered. God who is most God-centered. And I want to do just that from this chapter this morning. With that in mind, let me point out, if you're taking notes, due to time, I'll pick up the rest, uh, Lord willing, next Lord's Day. But this morning, I want to point out seven truths about God from this opening chapter. There's seven things that I would like for you to consider as we meditate upon the God of the Bible. Number one, God is the God of revelation. God is the God of revelation. God did not choose to hide himself from his creation. He is not shy. He is not afraid to make himself known. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. Remember that passage in Psalm 19? The heavens declare the glory of God. That is not the language of someone who wants to hide as if he is shy or, or fugitive. Instead, God wants to make himself known to the rest of his creation, including us. The fact that God is the God of revelation shatters the, the erroneous notion that God is some esoteric or mystical figure. There's no secret code. There's no secret handshake or secret rituals to know God. The Bible teaches that there are two ways in which God chose to reveal himself. One is through nature, and that is what theologians call the natural revelation or the general revelation. Just like Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Not only God chose to reveal himself through nature, but also he chose to reveal himself through words, specifically written words, the divinely inspired documents, also known as the Bible, that which you have in your possession. This is what theologians call the special revelation. 
You recall in the New Testament where Paul says, all scripture, remember, all scripture, the one of verse. I remember memorizing this as a kid. All scripture, that includes what? Genesis. All scripture is inspired by God. It's inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Hence, the book of Genesis is God-inspired scripture, and Genesis is divinely, it's a divine document whereby we know God. Again, God isn't hiding, but revealing himself in Genesis. As I mentioned before, I think I said this first time I was here several weeks ago, the Bible is not written like a systematic theology book where you'll find exhaustive information arranged topically. Rather, the Bible is written as a storybook and telling what we call meta-narrative, one overarching story, big story that is, one overarching story from beginning to end. And that story is about God redeeming his people with his son Jesus with the power of the Holy Spirit. That story is what we call the gospel. The gospel. And this is how the gospel begins. The gospel begins not in the New Testament with the arrival of Jesus. That is simply fulfilling of what God promised here in Genesis. The gospel begins right here in Genesis 1. And God wants you to know this is how the story begins. This is how the gospel begins. And that the main character in the gospel is God. God is first introduced. So what we have in our possession, God's gift to us in his church, the Bible, as if God is about to introduce you and me to this story. And out of all the things that God could have come up with to telling us story, he opens up the story revealing about who he is. And as you get to know Genesis 1, the rest of the Bible makes a lot of sense. Therefore, we don't have to guess. We don't have to be confused about what and who God is because God chose to reveal himself to us through his written document. That is why in Christianity, we say Christianity is based on what? Revelation. It's based on revelation, not personal experiences. Christianity is not based on my personal experience nor your personal experience. It's not based on subjective opinions. Hey, what do you think about what the Bible said? What do I think about the Bible said? It doesn't matter what I think. Nor is the Bible based on private revelation. You know, well, God told me, God gave me this vision. That's how cults start. R.C. Sproul 
said, the idle speculation about God is a fool's errand. If we wish to know him in truth, we must rely on what he tells us about himself. And God has given us a reliability document, namely his word. And so the Christianity is based on revelation, namely what God chose to reveal himself to us. So God is the God of revelation. Let's begin there. The second thing that we can know about God from Genesis 1 is not only God is God of revelation, but also God is God of self-existence. Self-existence speaks of God's pre-existence. Does a phrase in the beginning speak of God's or creation beginning? What do you think? I mean, how you answer that question reveals your understanding of God's preexistence. No, this is not about God's beginning. Instead, the context shows us it's about the creation's beginning. This is how what God created came about. To say that God is eternal does not only mean in terms of future reference, but also his past. That means God always existed in the past. In Christian theology, we call this the eternality of God. Psalm 90, verse 2 says, Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. That's what the psalmist says in Psalm 90, verse 2. God always existed. Because God always existed and because God is eternal, that implies that God is an unchanging God. That means he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Eternal also means God has no beginning or end. That implies that God does not and God cannot die. He cannot be killed. The fact that God is eternal also implies that he cannot be measured or controlled by time. Before time began, God existed. God can live in the past. God can live in the present and future simultaneously. I know that blows my mind too. Because how is that possible? 2 Peter 3.8, the scripture says, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. God is the author of time and God is controlling time. Now, having, having said God is not trapped by time and space, that doesn't mean his creation isn't confined by time and space, like you and me. The text shows that all of God's creation is trapped by time and space. The text points out the beginning of time and beginning of space Hence, this implies the history 
is not circular, but rather history is linear. That means it has a beginning, and it will have an ending. And this is what I remind my Buddhist friends. We don't recycle when we die. We're not, we're not going through circular motions, but rather we have a beginning and we have an end. So Genesis 1 is the beginning of God's redemptive story. There's a third thing that we see about God is not only God is a God of revelation, not only God is a God of self-existence, but God is the God of self-authority. God is God of self-authority. That means he answers to no one. God is subject to no one, and God is obligated to no one. And we don't like that. According to A.W. Pink, God is subject to none, influenced by none, absolutely independent. God does as he pleases, only as he pleases, always as he pleases. None, none can thwart him, none can hinder him. The fact that God is the God of revelation, self-existent, and self-authoritative utterly shatters nonsense such as atheism or agnosticism because God is God. He doesn't need to be rescued. God doesn't need to be defended against every opinion that is contrary to what he has already revealed. That's why the author of Genesis doesn't try to prove the existence of God. He already assumes that it is given. When you, when, when you and I are up against God, our view doesn't change the reality of God and the truthfulness of God. And so when I try to share the gospel to non-Christian friends, I often remind them, you can say whatever you say about God or don't say about God, that doesn't change the reality of God. That is to say, God is the one who is standing. God is not to be the one who is prosecuted, but you are. God's not on a trial, but you are. As Apostle Paul said, who are you, O man? So many philosophies err because they begin with man and try to put God in a corner. However, the first four words of the Bible stand against all of them and set God as originator of all things. That's why philosophy, science, and every man-centered academic discipline have not always been friendly toward the idea of God because they don't like the idea of having God in the authoritative and judgmental seat. People don't want such accountability to creator. So if you can kill God off of your mind, you can do whatever you want. So they think. Fourthly, God is God of self-sufficiency. 
God is God of self-sufficiency. And this is what Genesis 1 implies. He is the one who is genuinely self-sufficient. The self-sufficiency of God shatters the popular notion that God somehow created man so that God would not have to be alone. Or God needs companies to fellowship. He is so lonely that he has created his creatures. Or that man was created because God needed, hear me out, that God needed love. All this type of talk portrays as if God lacks something. And that man is there to somehow fill void in God, which is sheer nonsense. Unfortunately, this type of talk and nonsense views, as I mentioned, is, it's very common in evangelism or in curriculum of children's ministry or even youth ministry. Sometimes most uh, ranking heresies um, are found in those type of curriculum. And sadly, um, if churches not, are not theologically discerning, you just buy into that stuff. According to our fallen minds, we want to believe that we're valuable because what we imagine we can do for God. That's how some us think. That's how I used to think. Somehow, I'm valuable because I think so, which is really a fruit of pride and foolishness. Friends, the biblical view is that we have value only when God grants it to us, not when we put it on ourselves. We are valuable because God created us. Another example of bad theology is, is that God needs man to cooperate to accomplish his plans. And I grew up in this bad theology, bad theology uh, views. That is, without man's help or man working with God, God cannot achieve his plan. That's why, and this is what we call in theology, synergism, as opposed to monergism. The doctrine of synergism makes seem as if God is insufficient or dependent on man to accomplish his plan, including the plan of salvation. That is the view that somehow man cooperates with God in salvation, and that salvation is up to you. It is a message that salvation depends on, depended on your repentance, your faith, and what you have to pray, and so on. It's on you. The Bible says, for by grace we have been saved through faith. And you say, well, what about my faith then? Even that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Even the ability to believe the gospel is God's gift to you. Here's a fifth truth about who God is. 
And this is very obvious one. That is, God is the God of power. This is obvious from this opening chapter, and this is what God wants his readers to know, come face to face with. At the opening story of this redemptive drama, God is powerful. Because who can create something out of nothing? Have you done that? I tried to. You know, when I was growing up, um, one of the popular teachings in the church was, man, if you just think positively, right? If you just think positively and just claim it in your head. Well, I had a picture of Portia. I stare at that thing and I was thinking positively as I can. Nope. Doesn't work that way. Doesn't work that way. But God created something out of nothing with what? With his word. Let there be light. There was light. Friends, that's power. You and I, we can't grasp such notions, even the infinity of time and how God, can, God, is, God exists in the past, present, and future. We can't comprehend that because of our finite mind. As one German reformer said, the power and efficacy of his will issued forth his word. That implies that God is the ultimate cause, yet he is uncaused. Or as Martin Luther said, the created world, the created world is brought into being by the uncreated word. And that's what John says at the opening document that he wrote in John chapter 1, the first three verses. The Bible consistently portrays the power of God through myriads of examples, but nothing is more evident than God's creation. Put your finger there in Genesis. Would you turn your Bible with me to Romans 1? Romans 1. Romans 1 in verse 20, out of all things that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write this, to point out the power of God, this is what Paul said in Romans 1 verse 20, for since, out of all the things that Paul could have said, for since the creation of the world, since the creation of the world, Genesis 1 that is, his invisible attributes, his what? Eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. The Bible consistently portrays the power of God demonstrated in God's creation. And that's why if you don't accept the God of Genesis 1, chances are you're not going to accept the rest of what he did and what he says. According to the Puritans, the power of God is not only demonstrated in his creation, but also in God's protection in his church. 
A case in point, remember what Jesus said in Matthew 16, Jesus says, I will build my church, church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Moreover, God is powerful in upholding all things by the word of his power. That's Hebrews 1.3. God is upholding all things by the word of his power. And God is keeping his people in faith unto salvation. That's 1 Peter 1.5. God is keeping his people in faith. In other words, God is so powerful in completing the redemption that he started in his people. Remember this verse? For I am confident, Paul says, of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1.6. So it is God who started the work in you, and God will not say, okay, see you later. But no, he has continued to work in your life, and he will complete it until your last day here on earth. God is faithful, friends. Now, that's power. That's power. I'm so glad that my Christian life, ultimately, is not on me. I'll be so stressed out. If Christianity, if my Christian life is dependent on me and what I have to do, my works, my performance, that Jesus says, it is done. It is finished. Also, God is so powerful, not only in completing salvation that he started in his people, but also completing his final judgment. And that's how the story ends, right? That's how the redemptive story ends. In which book? Book of Revelation. He will finally throw Satan, the devil, and all evildoers and unrighteous people into, as the Bible says, the lake of fire. God will do that. Friends, that's power. That's power. Number six. God is the God of triune God. God is the God of triune God. And I get that from his name. Here in Genesis 1, in verse 1, in the beginning, God. The Hebrew word for God is Elohim. What is interesting about this word is that it is a plural form of a singular noun. It's a plural form of singular noun. Now, we we don't understand because, again, this is beyond our understanding. There's no such word like that in English or any other language for that matter. But it's a plural form of a singular noun. Although the word carries a singular meaning, God, it has a plural form. You ready to see this? Draw your attention to verse 25. Excuse me, verse 26. Then God said, check this out, let us, let us make man in our image. Let us make man in 
our image, according to our likeness, who's us? Who's our that God is referring to? Well, that's why God is a triune God. In Christian theology, we call this a doctrine of trinity or triunity. As one reformer said, it is the holy triad. This is perhaps a concise definition of Trinitarian God. One God, but three distinct persons. Whereas Westminster Shorter Catechism teaches, there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and Holy Ghost. And these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Perhaps some of you grew up in a tradition where you had to recite the Apostles' Creed. Remember the Apostles' Creed, if you recall, is so much emphasis on the triune God, isn't it? I believe in God the Father, the maker of heaven and earth, and then Jesus Christ, and then the Holy Spirit. The God is the God of triune God. And I, I wish that in our worship services, when we pray, when we sing, that, the, the, that such songs or prayer can reflect our triune God. We don't just simply worship single person, the Father. We don't simply worship his Son. And some churches, the heavily emphasis on the third person. All there is is about the Holy Spirit. But we worship the triune God. In fact, that's why when even in the book of Revelation, when Apostle Saul the tried to attempt to see the God and the angel says, holy, holy, holy. God is a God of triune God. Lastly, God is God of, here in Genesis 1, God is God of goodness. God is the God of goodness. Friends, every time God oversaw his finished work, what did he declare? He declared it was good. And what I want to emphasize is that he declared it was good. What this implies is that what is good is defined by God alone. Let me say that again. What is good is defined by God alone. None of his creations pronounce themselves good. The drafts did not walk around, hey, we're good. Or Adam and Eve did not walk around, hey, we're good. I'm good because I say so. You're good because I told you so. None of the creations pronounce themselves good or determine what is good. But God alone. This implication is so important because what's good is determined by God. In this chapter alone, the word good is mentioned seven times. And that implies that God's goodness is displayed throughout all of his work of creation. When we speak of God's goodness, 
We're talking about his moral character. According to Thomas Manton, a 17th century Puritan preacher, he said he is originally good, good of himself, which nothing else is. For all creatures are good only by participation and communication from God. He is essentially good, not only good, but goodness itself. The creature's good is a superadded quality in God. It is his essence. He is infinitely good. The creature's good is but a drop. But in God, there is an infinite ocean or gathering together of good. He is eternally and immutably good. For he cannot be less good than he is as there can be no addition made to him, so no subtraction from him. That's the language of a Puritan preacher. God is good. Martin Luther, whom I greatly respect, he understood this aspect of God's goodness when he said, man, if God told me to eat the dung from off the street... Not only would I eat it, but I would know it was good for me. That's Luther for you. Although the goodness of God is displayed all through his creation, God's goodness does appear in his special and sovereign love and mercy toward his elect. His people. Once again, I'd like to quote from one of the oldest Protestant faith documents. The Westminster Catechism teaches, he says, and chiefly, God's goodness does appear in his special love and mercy toward his own people, in choosing them, in redeeming them, in calling them, in pardoning them, in adopting them, in sanctifying them, in all the privileges he bestowed upon them and manifestations of his love unto them here and in his taking them unto and giving them possession of his kingdom hereafter. That's powerful, and that is absolutely right. God is good to his creation, certainly as Genesis 1. But God has special goodness, as our forefather says, toward his people, the people that his son shed his blood for. And that's a church, isn't it? And that's you, and that's me. Now, what does all this mean? So what? Let me give you three things for you to perhaps apply. As a result of knowing at least this much about God at the opening chapter. As a result of knowing at least this much about God, friends, you and I need to fear God. The fact that the, the one attribute of God alone, that God is powerful, that ought to bring sense of healthy fear for you and me. It is one thing to believe that God is powerful, 
Yet <clears throat> such truth has no implication in your life, in how you live, make choices, and think and talk. Fear God. Fear God. The difference between the devil and many of today's churches is that at least the devil fears God. Second thing that perhaps you can apply as a result of knowing this, at least this much about who God is in Genesis 1, you need to worship this God. True worship happens as a result of knowing the true God and the truth of God. True worship happens as a result of knowing the true God and the truth of of God. To say it negatively, true worship does not and cannot happen when you fail to understand the true God and the truth of God. Isn't it any wonder that Jesus said that true worshipers should worship the Father in spirit and truth? The third, perhaps, application as a result of knowing this much about God is to tell others about this God. That's our mission as God's people, the followers of Jesus and as a church of Jesus Christ. Tell others about this God. Knowing God Knowing God is not a one-time event. And knowing God doesn't just simply happen at a seminary, a retreat, Bible conference, or reading a book. Instead, knowing God is a process. It's a process and it's a journey. My challenge to you is put the highest priority on knowing God. Know God. Spend time knowing, growing in knowledge of God. And J.I. Packer, if you're those of you that are readers, I think every Christian ought to read his book, Knowing God. He writes, knowing about God is crucially important for the living of our lives. We are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about God whose world it is, and who runs it. The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place, and life in it, a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know about God. Disregard the study of God, and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through this life, blindfolded, as it were, with no sense of direction, no understanding of what surrounds you. This way, you can waste your life and lose your soul. What I just said to you, the quote by Packer, that's what really prompted John Piper to write his book, Don't Waste Your Life, and his ministry is called Desiring God. But you can desire God if you don't know God. 
And that's the, that's the, the rationale that Pastor P Dr. Piper will say, and that really shaped him in his um, approach and his outlook of life and God and, and everything. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for revealing yourself to us, your word, through your word. Deliver us from ignorance and arrogance. We want to know you, not only through having a wishful thinking, but committing ourselves to growing in the knowledge that you have given us in the written word. Help your people to trust on, to this reliable document which you have given us. Your word tells us that faith comes by hearing and not by the word of God. And we want to know you as we delve ourselves into studying and meditating. As Solomon says, we want to be such a blessed person whereby our lives can bear much fruit. And as we grow and, and become fruitful individually, collectively then as a church, we become fruitful. And we want our congregation, we want this church to be fruitful so help us. There are so many voices that, that competes with your word. Grant us a discernment to know your voice. As a sheep hears my voice, as our Lord Jesus says, help us to grow in that. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together. Do you guys um, know the, the hymn, Doxology? Great, I'm at the right church. If you don't know, let me just read a very short lyrics. It says, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. We'll sing doxology as a cappella together, and I'll close us with benediction. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of his eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, may he equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ.
to whom be the glory forever and ever. And all the God's people say, Amen. Amen. God bless you.